How many of you have ever crossed one of those rope walking bridges? The one with the wood slats? Maybe you crossed over it at a gully or a canyon on a farm or at time, maybe on a ropes course. Rope bridges are notorious for being a little shaky. Crossing over them can often leave one's knees weak and palms sweaty. I have a picture of a wood slatted bridge. How many of you would be willing to cross this bridge? This bridge is in Madagascar. Would you? Could you trust the ropes or the wires? Would you dare to cross over? <laughs> Hello everyone. We continue our series on the Sermon on the Mount by finishing up the sixth section of Jesus' teaching on you have said, but I say to you. See, we've looked at the character qualities of God's kingdom. And in this teaching, and the one last week, are like they're like crossing a wood slided bridge over Madagascar. For most of, a, most of us, it would be impossible. Not because we can't, but because we don't want to. We're afraid to make that crossing. And if you remember, Jesus has redefined in these five teachings how we reconcile with one who holds a grudge against us. He has challenged our hearts and minds regarding purity and regarding the permanence of marriage. Austin spoke about the importance of integrity, making our yes, yes, and our no, no. And last week, last week we discussed the topic of retaliation. And this week, we seek to answer this question. How do we love people we can't stand, who probably can't stand us either? Yeah, last week's teaching on retaliation and this week's teaching on loving our enemies are some of the most difficult words of Jesus. Are they not? I mean, they are difficult to hear, and they're more difficult to live out in this new kingdom ethic. Jesus is asking his followers to move beyond our current thinking, our attitudes, and our actions to a place of love. And I'll remind you, this is a bridge Jesus is imploring us to cross, that bridge of love. And it's hard, and it's difficult, and sometimes it's scary. And as I said last week, this is not about our behavior. Jesus is inviting us into his kingdom ethic, which is impossible by ourselves. The joy of Jesus' kingdom can only be experienced when we trust Jesus. And when we put one foot in front of the other and cross the narrow way of righteousness, peace, and faithfulness. And it can only occur, it can only occur when the Spirit of Christ is in us and we're listening to his voice. Understanding that our Heavenly Father is with us and for us. You know, the greatest commandment, if we remember, of course we do, we are to love God and we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. And here's my question. Are we there yet? Are, are you there yet? Am I there yet? Are we there as a church? I've been amazed how Christians could be so vicious toward one another during this past political season. And we're not even enemies of each other. Are we? The tone... The banter during the past political season rose to a level I've never seen before. This is what I wrote in my prayer journal a week before the election two weeks ago. Lord, if we had as much passion and zeal for you and your son as we do our political candidates, there would be no end to the increase in your kingdom. I said, I'm amazed how many missionaries we have in our churches who are evangelizing candidates who cannot bring life but who also shrink back from mentioning your name to others. I'm afraid our political passions and exhortations these past few months have hurt feelings within this church. 
Our elders believed our retort toward one another warranted an email to each family to remind us of our responsibility as believers to those we are called to love. And in this intensity and passion, we have made enemies of those we're called to love, even if we did not mean it to happen. And now we come to the sixth teaching of Jesus. Here it is. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 5, verses 43 through 44. We have some work to do, don't we? In speaking about Jesus, no one said anything like this before. No one lived it out like Jesus either. And as a reminder, Jesus is challenging us to live and act and be. This is how we're supposed to be in his new kingdom. And through these challenges, we're learning that kingdom living is much more than changing one's behavior. Jesus desires an eternal metamorphosis to occur in our heart, in mind, and souls. And in this passage, we are to be peacemakers and not agitators. And if you notice, this passage has a beatitude connection. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, I want you to remember this. It's, it's going to be brought up again in this sermon. But for right now, I just want you to sit with that passage before I return to it. In fact, I want you to repeat it with me. Say it with me. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Let's say it one more time. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Let's look at our text again. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Every week in our study, Jesus has returned to the Torah, the law of Moses, his scriptures, to aid us in understanding how God intended the law to be interpreted from the very beginning. And we've dealt with the topic of re reconciliation and lust and divorce and oaths and retaliation today, loving our enemy. And Jesus said, you have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So where did this occur in the old law? Leviticus 19 verse 18. Here's what it says. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So when you read this passage, what is missing? No, really, what, what is missing here? When you look at that passage and read it, what's missing? Hate your enemy. It's not there. You can look through the entire book of the Torah and you will not find a command where God says, hate your enemy. Nowhere. But in the time of Jesus, this is how the teachers of the law and the Pharisees interpreted this law in Leviticus, which begs the question I believe Jesus is asking, just who is my neighbor? The teachers of the law taught that neighbor only applied to those of the same kind as me. In other words, if they look like me and believe like me, they're to be considered my neighbor. If not, they can be considered an enemy. Isn't that kind of how we believe? I mean, come on, come on, be honest. We may believe everyone is made in the image of God, but deep down we believe that this verse only applies to those as the same kind as me. And even if we truly believe it, how many times has our behavior betrayed us? We have difficulty with, with people of different kind, and we, are, we often have difficulty with those of the same kind, don't we? <laughs> Listen, I'm not saying <laughs> I'm any better. Believe me, practically speaking, this is by far one of the most difficult passages to live out every day. It is. 
And I can't tell you the times that my heart has wandered to a place of hating and hate for my enemy. Let's go back a couple of verses in Leviticus 19 and gather the context of this verse. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor, defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The poor, the great, the neighbor, your own people, your brother, Sons of your own people, does this not beg the question again? Who then is my neighbor? See, Jesus redefines neighbor. Jesus defines neighbor as all people, all people, especially those with whom I come into contact daily. And if you are on Facebook, Twitter, 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 Instagram, or TikTok, whatever social media, you may encounter thousands daily. And each of them are your neighbor. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love my enemy? What does that mean? No, really, what does it mean? The word love has a very broad meaning, does it not? I mean, in our language, it can mean I like this piece of bread when we say love, or I care for my family, my church family, deeply, or I like you as a person, meaning I love you as a person. Our English word for love has a variety of levels, and we are left to figure out exactly how we interpret the word in your context in which it is spoken. Many of us say, I love my enemy. We can quote this verse and mean it, but how are we using the word love in the English language? Do we care for it? Do we like? Do we appreciate all people? I've heard this over and over. I love all people, but do we agape this person? Which is the word used by Jesus in the context of loving our enemy, agape. See John 3, 16, for God so agape the world, agape that he gave us his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus said this type of love is our response to retaliation. Love is our response to persecution, to anger, and to those who are our enemies. And if agape is our response, what is our main, what is the main attributes? All right, all right, let me give you two. Agape is an attitude. So what is my attitude of and what is your attitude toward those of a different kind? To those of a different kind theologically, politically, racially, intellectually, economically? All right, let's turn back to the scriptures, which we quoted in Leviticus 19. I'm going to go to verse 33. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you should not do him wrong. You should treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, what does a stranger represent in our context? Is it the person who does not see eye to eye with me politically? Is it the person who rubs me the wrong way? Is it the person who has an ethnic background or the Hispanic family who lives right next door to me? And here's a principle. Agape is an attitude of inclusion. An attitude. Our attitude in this new kingdom ethic should be one of inclusion, one of love, and one of peace. My attitude is the same kind of different as me. And if you haven't read that book, I'd love for you to read it. Same kind of different as me. No matter who you are, we are all of the same kind. 
Each of us are made in the image of God. And Jesus said, no matter what they do to me or how they treat me, I am to pray to my Father on their behalf. The people who are difficult to love, the people who are out to harm me, the individuals who have hurt me by their words, I must include them in my daily prayers. See, we need to leave the revenge and the outcome to God, as we spoke about last week. My responsibility is to love. My agape is an attitude which includes all people. I take care in how I think about my enemies, no matter who they are. And I turn my concerns of that individual over to God. Why? Because I allow God to work on their heart and my heart so, I can, so we can bring about reconciliation. And in love, as a follower of Christ, I take the first step. Which leads me to my second side of agape. Agape is an action. Agape always makes the first move. If I truly trust Jesus, I make the first move as the one who is mature. Remember the passage earlier in this chapter from Matthew? So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gifts. And here's the principle. Agape is action without boundaries. How many times has love been denied because no one had the courage to make the first move? Well, it was their fault. Agape requires action. It requires humility. It requires grace. It requires forgiveness and reconciliation. If we want to be sons of our Father, we must cross over our self-imposed boundaries, self-imposed, and make the first move. It's like crossing a rope bridge, isn't it? Seems impossible, does it not? Again, this is hard. This is difficult. It's complex, and it takes agape love. And with agape, one's attitude and action will endure to the end. This passage of Scripture is so unique. It's so unique because Jesus describes how he arrived at his understanding in the following verses. And he looks at three things. Here's the first. Jesus first looked at his father. Jesus arrived at his conclusion by knowing and being his father. Let's go back to the beatitude we could have quoted before. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I was shocked when I found out this is the only time in Matthew where Matthew describes humanity as sons of God. The only time. Jesus is described as the son of God many times in the Gospel of Matthew. But this is the only time humans are described as being sons of God in Matthew. And who are they? They're the peacemakers. Peacemakers are described as sons of God. And where can we find this peace within? In Jesus, the Prince of Peace. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The attitude Jesus displayed are the same as his heavenly Father. Now look at the text for today. Let's read it one more time. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Did you notice that? We are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us so that we may be what? What? Sons of our Father. 
And yes, yes, this is the only time sons of your father is used in Matthew. Both sons of God and sons of father occur once in Matthew. And both times are found in the Sermon on the Mount in reference to humanity. This is significant. Jesus looks at his father, his nature, his character, and says, when I look at my father, his character is one of peace and loving all people, even those who hate him. Why? Why? Because... God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. See, we are to take our cue from God, our Father. We are all image bearers of the King. And we are to love everyone. Don't we? Aren't we? We're to love those who we often ignore, push away, and abandon. We are to love the unlovable and love our enemies, right? Remember, this is agape love. Attitude plus action equal love. God's love. He loves you. He loves even his enemies. God loves all people. He does not desire anyone to perish, but wants all men everywhere to come to a knowledge of the truth. That's Acts 17, verse 30. Now, when I view my Father, I witness his love for all people. All people. Now, Jesus arrives at his understanding and answers this question. Who then is my neighbor? My neighbor, I look to my father to figure that out. He loves all people. Second, Jesus looks at the weather. He makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. About three weeks ago, we had a tremendous ice storm. There were many trees damaged. Many. (laughs) The ice damaged trees of God's image bearers who were just and unjust, did he not? I mean, the ice was no respecter of persons. And when God sends rain, does he not also send the rain on the just and the unjust? Absolutely. So Jesus used the weather to inform us of the nature and character of God toward all people. Jesus is reflecting on Psalm 145. In his scripture in verse 8, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desires of every living thing. (laughs) This, again, is boundary-breaking stuff. And here's my question. Do we have eyes to see? Do we? In God's economy, this is a new kingdom ethic. Jesus is teaching his followers to view all people as beloved, beloved, loved by God. Let me take a right turn in my lesson and make a point. If I'm a child of God, I do not have the right or the authority to treat someone as unloved when my Savior died for that individual. Everyone deserves kindness and love. Everyone And even though we may detest another, we must find it within ourselves to exhibit the right attitude and action toward all people. Why? Because our behavior speaks to the eternal leanings of our heart. I'll admit it would be much easier if Jesus said, just love those people who love you and love those you love. Most of us could go about business as usual. We would not have to ponder how we treat those of a different kind, would we? Remember, this is the universal question Jesus is exploring, who then is my neighbor? 
Jesus is calling us to a different standard. Jesus is calling us to a place unlike the world. Loving those who love me back is great, but it is not the embodiment of our Christian call. Everyone does that. Everyone from the tax collectors to your friends have that mentality. And here's the last example of how Jesus arrived at his understanding of loving our enemies. Jesus looked at the tax collectors and their friends. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? When we are inside our circle, people are decent to one another. You know, our family, our school, our work, right? If you're in my political circle, my social circle, even my church circle, I'm usually going to be decent to you. Reinhold Niebuhr says this about our little circles, and it's so true. Individuals may see the moral light and voluntarily give up their unjust posture, but groups tend to be more immoral than individuals. Behavior I would never condone as an individual, I condone with a group. Have you ever participated in a group activity and later looked back on your participation and cringed? Yeah, why is this? It's because our love is self-centered. Brothers and sisters, there are difficult people in this world. There are difficult people in this church. Who knows? I may be one of them, and believe me, I know at times I can be difficult. But we're called to a higher standard. A much higher standard. Jesus says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word perfect there is teleos, and if the, in the Greek it means mature or complete, someone who has re- reached a completion point in their growth and development as an individual. If I'm striving to be perfect, to be complete, to be fully developed as a follower of Christ, I must stop. To answer this question, how can I cross tribal lines to perform an act of benevolent love to someone which goes against the grain of my nature and character? All right, let me, let me repeat that question. How can I cross tribal lines to perform an act of benevolent love to someone which goes against the grain of my nature and character? You know, we're never more like God than when we choose a concrete act of kindness to one who is our enemy. Not someone from our tribe, but one who is difficult for us to love. During the ice storm, many people had no electricity for a couple of days. Deborah and I had a gas fireplace, a gas stove, a gas water heater. We were pretty good. Other than trying to find the light in the evening, we were good. On the other hand, our Hispanic neighbors had four children. And my ladder. I mean, his ladder. I mean, God's possession he loaned me is <laughs> still in his backyard. But Dev and I could not go to sleep without knowing they had a warm place to stay. So we texted them, invited them to spend the night. The wife usually texts back quickly, but there was a long pause, silence. I'm pretty sure they considered the offer. Ultimately, they decided to stay in their home. It was a text difficult to send. We were crossing a scary bridge, holding tight and trusting the rope which anchors us in his patience, grace, and love. Let me quickly give you 
some practical advice on how to love difficult people. <laughs> Listen, I stole these from somebody. So here they are. Number one, remember how much you have been loved. And number two, expect nothing in return. Number three, don't make a big show out of your gestures of kindness. Number four, be patient and give grace. Number five, pray for them. And number six, move toward them and not away from them. And number seven, find specific ways to bless and encourage them. Number eight, give grace just as God extends grace to you. And number nine, realize that you can, you can too be a difficult person in someone else's life sometimes. And number 10, attitude plus action equals love. Who then is your neighbor? Are you ready to cross the bridge? I pray God bless you as you strive to walk in the grace, faith, and love of Christ. And I pray that you will agape your neighbor in attitude, in action. Your neighbor is the one right next to you. May God bless you and may God be with you.